Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Should Canada integrate more private health care into our delivery model? There has been a sixth incident involving a coyote in Burlington. Experts say taking on more debt right now is not a good idea. What are Pierre Poiliev's chances of gaining power at Parliament Hill? A new report suggests Canada's major cities are feeling the housing crunch, and we are supporting the Canada Walks for Bladder Cancer event coming up in Hamilton. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is a massive debate, and it's, it's really not new, but it has been heating up over the last number of weeks and months because with burnout, a real factor in the healthcare industry, the debate over private versus public care in Canada is among many discussions that people are having around the water cooler, on Zoom calls, whatever the case is. Do we need more private care? Well, there's a new Angus Reid survey that's out that shows half of their respondents in this recent survey say healthcare would suffer if more private care was implemented, and 32% said more private care would improve the healthcare system. 18% said they're not quite sure where they land in this debate. Dr. Michael Rackless is a public health physician, adjunct professor at the University of Toronto, Dalla Lana School of Public Health, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Rackless, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Is, I understand why the debate is being had, but is this a debate we should be having? <laughs> no, I, I, well, I think it's a, it's a great leap sideways and backwards um, because um, uh, private care, um, either private pay or private for-profit delivery within the public system, there's lots of evidence it's not, it, it, it's counterproductive, it's more expensive, um, it's less equitable. Um, and um, the main thing is we don't need it. Um, if I had a nickel for every time that Dr. Brian Day's Canby Clinic in Vancouver was mentioned, I'd be a rich man. But the largest out-of-hospital surgical facility in North America is not too far. It's about in between where you and I are, between Toronto and Hamilton. It's the Queensway Surgery Centre in western Toronto, uh, eastern Mississauga. Um, it's part of the Trillium Health System in Mississauga, and it's a public not-for-profit facility, and it is the largest out-of-hospital surgical facility in North America. Um, so we have these focus factories, if you will. We have these really efficient clinics within our public system. They're all over. Kensington um, Health Centre in Toronto does more cataract surgery than you know, you know, Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick put together. And it's a, it's a public not-for-profit facility. Um, the uh, Pan Am Clinic in Winnipeg, 70,000 square feet. Uh, it was a private facility up until about 20 years ago when it was bought by the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. And as Dr. Wayne Hildall, the uh, director, medical director of the clinic before and after then transition says, the only difference in care is that I have to take the money that I could use for a vacation and put it into patient care. So um, we, we don't, uh, specifically around private surgical facilities, we don't need them. We've got them in the public sector, but nobody ever knows about them. Uh, there have been, I, I don't even know if there's been one national story ever about the Queensway Surgical Center, and it's the largest in North America. 
There is a good chunk of healthcare delivery in this province, in this country, that is privately based. Anyone who has, you know, a benefits program and they go to the chiropractor or the optician or whatever the case is, they're paying a fee, but it's not necessarily coming out of pocket. When we're talking about privatizing healthcare, what are those people focused on? There's there's really two main parts to the private-public debate. The first is private finance. Should I be able to finance my own um, services, um, either through paying cash out of my pocket or by buying private insurance? Um, And that was the original debate about Medicare. Justice Emmett Hall, um, the Supreme Court Justice in the 60s, who chaired the Royal Commission on Health Services, uh, noted that it was going to be a whole lot more expensive to have multiple private insurance providers than to have one public payer. And he, as a conservative, I should say, recommended that it would be prudent to spend public money on a public uh, insurance system. And not only is is public insurance a lot more efficient, um, it's more equitable because um, for physician services and for hospital services, it's not perfect, but mainly Canadians get care according to their needs, not according to how rich they are. On the other hand, when we look at drugs, dental services, some of the things that you mentioned that are not covered by our Medicare program, there's stark differences um, in whether or not you get your drugs depending on whether you're poor or rich. We're talking about the debates over private versus public health care in Canada with Dr. Michael Rackless, public health physician and an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto's Dalalana School of Public Health. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You're you're in the sector. You're probably reading the tea leaves. Should Canadians be concerned that this debate will be more than a debate in the years to come? Well, it, it, it's been a, a feature of, of the debate about Medicare ever since the very beginning, for the, it, it, at least 60 years, and even going back before that. And, uh, but as I, as I said earlier, it's really a great leap sideways and backwards, because what we really need to focus on is the solutions we've got within our public system. Um, and I've mentioned some of the um, uh, large out-of-hospital surgical facilities we have in Canada that are in the public sector and cheaper than um, the the private sector. And then um, there's lots of other examples of where, you know, we feel we don't have enough family physicians in Canada. In the last 10 years, the number of family physicians has gone up by 20%. And yes, it seems like they're less available. Well, there are solutions. I mean, in Hamilton, there's the Hamilton Family Health Team, the largest in the province. Um, and uh, it's uh, integrated with um, psychiatric services from MAC and provides, I would say, the best out-of-hospital mental health services in, in the country for any large city. Um, and that, was, that wasn't that was by getting psychiatrists and paying them privately. It was getting McMaster's psychiatrists led by Dr. Nick Cates, the former chair of the department, um, to uh, get a bunch of, of the psychiatrists to participate and integrate with family doctors' offices and mental health counselors based in their offices. And it's it's really maybe not well known in Hamilton. It's it's completely unknown, you know, uh, 80K down the QEW in Toronto, of course, um, that, that we could be using this model of shared psychiatric services to enhance access to mental health care. Um, and we should be using this with all of the sort of general specialty services, as they're called, internal medicine, 
um, pediatrics, uh, all of these specialists should be linked up with primary healthcare practices. And so uh, I, I think the worst part of this privatization debate is that private pay is, again, it's less efficient, it's less equitable. Uh, private finance care, like Dr. Day's clinic, is more expensive, um, and it, it's got questions around equity. And why aren't we talking about, you know, Hamilton's mental health services? Um, when was the last time you had somebody from that um, program on your, on, uh, from that program on your program? Maybe it was last week, but my guess is that we're not focusing on the parts of our system that work that need to be expanded. We're having this public-private debate, and quite frankly, it serves the interests of rich people who would be better off paying less taxes and then paying for their own care. And it greatly benefits um, TELUS, the private insurance companies, you name it, when you these big corporations who are just looking at Canada's Medicare system as if it were, you know, an oyster with a with a pearl inside. So um, I, 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 that's why I'm probably not answering your questions directly. I'm really trying to feature some of the best things in the public system because I just don't think they get talked about enough. Well, you've, you've done a wonderful job of doing that this morning, Dr. Rackless. Thank you for your time today. I know the debate has been, as you mentioned, going on for 60 plus years, and I'm sure it'll be happening uh, decades from now. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Rick. That's Dr. Michael Rackless, public health physician and an adjunct professor at the U of T's Dalla Lana School of Public Health. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This next story, and it's a serious one and a scary one, really, and it's happening right across the bay in Burlington. That city's activated its crisis management team after yet another resident was attacked by a coyote over the weekend. It's the sixth such attack on a resident. This time, it happened at a retirement home on New Street Saturday morning. The coyote attacked a resident who had fallen asleep on the patio. Now, she was sent to hospital, is back home the next day. So that's the good news. The bad news is we got to get a handle on this situation. The mayor of Burlington is Marianne Mead Ward, and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marianne, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Rick. Appreciate to be back. This is scary stuff. I mean, this is not one or two incidents. We're up to six now. We are up to six, and we have called in uh, the the experts at the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry. I spoke directly to the minister, Graydon Smith, on Saturday uh, as soon as this happened. He has been enormously helpful to us in marshalling uh, the expertise and the resources at the ministry. And what they've advised us is that this is likely the work of one family of coyotes. They typically, uh, they're very territorial, um, and they typically can have a range of up to about 50 kilometers, and that is where all the attacks uh, have occurred well within this. Uh, we did locate and euthanize the coyote that, was, that we believe was responsible for the first three, but then, of course, three more occurred. And, and so that's what the ministry is advising us. We do have a certified wildlife technician on contract who has been helping us track uh, the remainder of this family. And our protocol is if a coyote attacks a human being, we do put them down. What is the MNR's role in this? Is it just an advisory capacity or do they send in officials to handle the situation as well? We're working with them on that. At this point, they are advisory, and it has been enormously helpful. They have experts uh, that they uh, deal with that, that know all about coyote behavior. I've learned a lot about coyotes uh, through this, and 
but we have also said, look, uh, if if you can spare somebody to come and help us track, uh, we would appreciate that. So, uh, so those discussions are ongoing. But in the meantime, we do have uh, we have contracted after the first uh, couple of attacks at the services of a wildlife technician. Our animal control, of course, have been tracking uh, the coyotes, and and we we have been tracking them for years. Um, coyotes have been in Burlington as long as I've been here, and that's 22 years. This is the first time uh, there has ever been a report of coyote attacks. And what the ministry is telling us is that this is because they've lost their fear of humans, and that's likely because people are intentionally or unintentionally feeding them. Uh, Yesterday we found a bushel of corn and other food left out on a bike path right half a block from where this lady was bitten. So we need the public to stop doing that. Don't put out food. Don't feed wild animals. As soon as they lose their fear of humans, they become a danger to us. Talking about the series of coyote attacks in Burlington with Mayor Marianne Mead Ward here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The crisis management team has been activated. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. This is a more formal uh, level of activation, we call it. it. It brings together all the department heads. We are in direct conversation with the province that can advise us on what assistance or resources might be available to us, and, uh, it, and it formalizes a reporting structure. We, we uh, are sending reports as soon as we meet to the province about what actions that we're taking to deal with this, and they can give us some help or direct us to folks who can give us some help. It is one step below declaring a state of emergency. So it is a big deal, and it's really intended to, first of all, marshal all the people together that we need to deal with this, uh, to send a message to the community that this is serious and that we're on top of it, and to get any advice or resources from the province that might be available. I probably should ask this off the start, but are all the victims okay? They are, yeah. They were all uh, treated with rabies uh, treatments, which is which is not fun, uh, but they have all uh, been treated for their wounds and released. For those who are found, if someone is found to be feeding one of these animals or putting out food, uh, is there a penalty? There is. We have a longstanding bylaw. The fine is $300, and we are looking uh, at additional um, fines or increasing that fine to send a very strong message that this is not okay. You put your own self at risk. You put the animals at risk because when they lose their fear of humans, they do become a danger. They have to be put down. So if people think they're being kind feeding wild animals, the, the opposite is true. They're not being kind to the animals, but, but more importantly, they're putting their friends and neighbors at serious risk of a, an attack. Last one for you, because we, we got to go. Do we know how big this coyote family is, and do you have a timeline or a deadline to take care of the problem? We can put it that way. Uh, we don't yet know how big the, the family is. It's se- several coyotes, for sure, uh, and we're not going to stop until we deal with it. Marianne Meadward, Mayor of Burlington, thanks for joining us today, and uh, good luck on this, uh, on this uh, fight. Thanks a lot, Rick. Appreciate your attention and time. That is Marianne Meadward, the mayor of the city of Burlington. Six coyote attacks now on uh, residents in the Burlington area, including the latest on Saturday. A scary situation as a resident of a retirement home was taking a nap on the patio uh, down on New Street. And along comes a coyote and chomp, chomp, chomp. There's some bite marks in this person's hip.
Not a lot of fun. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know that everything is costing more these days. You go to the grocery store, you're hit with a sticker shock. You go to the department store, same thing. Supply chain issues, throwing a wrench into things, inflation, mortgage rates going up, interest rates going up, and on and on and on and on and on. We can't seem to get a break. And this may not be the time, according to financial experts, to take on more debts, to take on additional debt. Here to talk about it is Paul Anatyuk, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. Paul, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Rick. And you? I'm good. StatsCan has said that household debt has reached 1.82%. Number one, what does that figure mean? And number two, who is at most risk? You know, Rick, the rise in the household debt is just a signal that Canadians are struggling, keeping up with cost of living, with many turning to debt to meet ends meet. The household debt ratio that sits at the 1.82, what that means to the average Canadian is the average Canadian owes $1.82 for every dollar earned. According to StatsCan, the level of debt amongst households is now growing faster in earnings. Disposable income has increased 1%. And uh, I think we've heard this many times when they've been talking about inflation, but the household credit market debt rose 2.1%. What that means is debt is growing twice as fast as earnings. StatsCan reports households added 56.3 billion of debt in the second quarter, which included 47 point billion in mortgages. Uh, so that is just amazing stats that we're hearing out. And, you know, we've been talking for a couple of months, Rick, now about the need to avoid adding debt. But however, it doesn't look like Canadians are really listening at this time. What are some of the warning signs that Canadians should be looking out for when it comes to their debt spinning out of control? Is it just looking at their bank account or is there a little bit more to that? There's a lot more to that. And what, what we find is, well, first of all, if your listeners have been up all night waiting for your show and also uh, worrying about their debt. That is number one warning sign that I see. People are losing sleep. And, and that's the worst thing you can do in your debt situation because everyone knows that we need a proper sleep for our mind to function. And when you're already in financial debt and you're trying to get out, the lack of sleep is a uh, killer for some. Other warning signs, you know, are you only making your minimum payments? Are you robbing Peter to pay Paul? Which means are you using one credit card or line of credit to pay off another? Are your bills frequently late? Are you skipping payment on some bills? Are you having to make that decision? Are you using a credit card as a source of finance rather than convenience? Also, if you're looking at your credit cards, are you always exceeding your borrowing limit or going into overdraft or having to ask for more limits on your line of credit? Are you using cash advances? Do you have no money by payday? Are you going for payday loans? Are you asking family and friends? Are you receiving calls from collection agencies? And worst of all, are you getting your wages garnished? These are some of the common warning signs that I see when I meet with people every day regarding their financial situation. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Paul Anachek, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. We're talking about as household debts continues to rise for many of us, Paul and many other experts in the financial field are saying that now is not the best time to take on more debt. What is your advice for people who are listening in today in terms of using the skills and, and spreadsheets and tools that are out there to make their financial picture a little more breathable? 
Look, well, really give yourself a, a little time to take a look at your financial situation. When you're reviewing financial options, you should never really rush into it. What you should do is take time, review your situation, contact an expert such as myself, a licensed insolvency trustee that can go over all the options. You know, we do have great spreadsheets on our on our website. And my number one advice for people is to take a look at your budget at this time. We know that half of Canadians do not have budgets, which is also another startling stat. However, if you don't have a budget, you really don't know where to turn to in times of financial difficulty. And a perfect example is this. If you have, don't have a budget, you don't know where you can actually trim those expenses so that you can keep up with your monthly costs. And not a lot of people, as we've talked about for years now on Ask the Experts with BDO Debt Solutions, the latest show, in fact, this Saturday at 11. For years, we've been talking about people not having a budget. They really, you know, they really don't have a roadmap of, of what's coming in, what's going out, and how to uh, avoid this debt. And, and if they have it, uh, you know, a game plan to tackle it. That's right. And, uh, you know, a lot of the financial institutions uh, also offer budgets. People don't realize that your own bank is offering budget helps because the financial institutions realize that this is a problem. You know, once you get that budget in place, that's right. It's, it's perfect to get a game plan. You know, take a look at your debt. How long is it going to take if you're going to be paying the minimums? A lot of people are going to be startled at that fact. And when you see that number, this is where you start getting a game plan is how can I pay my debt down faster? How can I uh, avoid coming into a financial difficulty later on? We know COVID's taught us a lot of things. And one thing is that we know what an emergency really is. So make sure that you're prepared for emergency, even in your financial uh, plan that you're creating. Got about a minute. I don't want to be all doom and gloom because there is a light at the end of the tunnel here. And that goes to the uh, the multitude of help that is out there, including uh, you, Paul, at BDO Debt Solutions on many options that are available to people who are listening here today. That's correct. It's not all doom and gloom. You know, when we're looking at people's financial situations, and this is what we do is we help people find a light at the end of the tunnel because everyone has a solution to their debt problems. A lot of times people feel alone don't know where to turn to, but however, there is help. You just have to actually reach out for it. We can help you afterwards. You just have to pick up the phone and give us a call at one eight five five bdo debt or visit our website at uh, bdodebt.ca. You just have to make that initial step, which I know can be too hard for a lot of your listeners. However, once you make that step, we're going to help you through the entire process. And again, as I mentioned, we'll find that light at the end of the tunnel for you. I should mention that's also a free, no obligation consultation as well to explore where you're at and where you could be heading. Paul, appreciate the time today. We'll talk to you on uh, Saturday. Thanks, Rick. We'll talk then. That's Paul Anacek, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee, BDO Debt Solutions. I would say he's the better half of Ask the Experts with BDO Debt Solutions that I host this coming Saturday at 11 o'clock in the morning. Tune in to hear, uh, well, about a lot of this stuff, creating smart goals, an emergency fund, uh, a budget, s- uh, stress testing your debt. We get into all these different topics to help you get into a better financial place. The Good Morning Hamilton Summer Cruise and Series is continuing this week, this coming Thursday and every Thursday at 8.20 in the morning throughout the summer. We are shining a spotlight on a big event in the city. And this week, although it's it's taking place September 22 to 25, we're going to be focusing on the Ancaster Fair, which goes at the Ancaster Fairgrounds. So tune in this Thursday and hopefully we'll see you at the fair in a couple of weekends time. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Not surprised at the numbers we saw over the weekend as the federal conservative party 
has a newly minted leader, Pierre Polyev, winning in a landslide on Saturday. The question now becomes, one among many, is does he have the goods? Does he have what it takes to become the next prime minister of Canada? Can he unseat Mr. Trudeau? In Parliament Hill. David Tarrant is the Vice President of National Strategic Communications at Enterprise Canada and a former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Good friend of the show. Welcome back, David. How are you? Rick, it's great to be on. Thanks. It's it's no surprise that Paul have won or by how much. The question now becomes, and again, one of among many, behind the scenes, there are certain things he has to do to get his ducks in a row. What are some of those I don't know if they're necessarily challenges, but uh, boxes on the checklist that he has to check off to get ready to take a run at Mr. Trudeau. Well, I think the first thing, Rick, and you touched on this in your introduction, is let's not understate the just the massive extent of the landslide victory that, that Pierre Pauly had won. Um, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of talk in the, during the summer leading up to the election that, you know, is this a takeover of the party by, you know, Pauly supporters or is he a divisive candidate? Um, you know, that was all hogwash, quite frankly, from people who probably aren't, who are invested in the failure of the Conservative Party. Um, it's clear that he is the voice of the mainstream of the Conservative Party in terms of the, the overwhelming, on near supermajority that he won, uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the support from caucus, you know, the support that, that former Prime Minister Harper gave him. And so, you know, uh, people who say, oh, is there a unification issue? Not really. Like, the party is, the party is clearly, uh, uh, behind him in this. Now, the issue is, is now you've got to move to a footing of, of fielding the most competitive uh, campaign team candidates to actually win a general election. And, that's a, and, and so the real challenge is, quite frankly, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, Rick, in terms of uh, getting the right staff, getting the right uh, front-bench talent among the politicians to ensure that you're prepared to win. And that takes a lot of behind-the-scenes work. Yeah, and one of the tricky parts is, and maybe tricky is not the word to use, but we have not seen Pierre Poiliev as a leader, so we're not quite exactly sure on what kind of managerial skills, at the end of the day, you need these sort of skills to manage and maneuver the parter, uh, the party that he has, is is one of those uh, tricky parts, making sure he gets the right people in the right places. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, there's two things about that. I mean, the first thing is anyone who's worked with Pierre, as we'll tell you, He's an incredibly intelligent man, one of the smartest politicians I've ever worked with, and incredibly hardworking. Um, when you're an individual member of caucus or even a cabinet minister, that means that you, quite frankly, um, you know, can go it alone a lot, like Pierre Polyev. I think he would, would say he's his own, has been his own senior advisor for a long time. Um, it's harder to do that, and and you know, and so I mean, the real challenge for him to find. He has a, this is a guy who has a very clear sense, a very clear sense of the kind of leader he wants to be the kind of party he wants to lead and the kind of government that, you know, elected that voters will and he wants to, wants to win. And he needs to find people on staff who are on that wavelength who understand that because he comes in with a lot of that fully formed. The other thing about it, too, is, is you know, not to speak ill of the departed, but the, the, the management skills of his predecessor weren't great, right? One of the number one flaws of Aaron O'Toole was he lost his own people uh, who didn't believe him authentic or didn't believe he was being straight with them. And so, like, you know, the bar is a little bit lower. Uh, and it's clear that a lot of the people who are became disenchanted with, with, with Aaron O'Toole are rallying beyond Polyev. So he doesn't need to do as much rebuilding, given the size of his mandate. He needs to reassure people and keep people inside the tent. we got 30 seconds. Could supporting the convoy come back to haunt him during election time? Well, the, the liberals and certain figures in the media will certainly try to, Rick. 
Um, you know, my sense on that is, listen, uh, there's a lot of ink spilled on this. What we know about the, the convoys was this, is that it, got, it consumed a ton of national attention. And if you live in the national capital region, if you live in the ottawa Gatineau region, it really was a defining event the past several years. And there's a lot of people who are angry. Now, a lot of journalists, Rick, live in the uh, national capital region. A lot of politicians live in the national capital region. But, I mean, how many people in Hamilton, Rick, were, were, dis- were, were inconvenienced by the convoy? How many people in Moncton or Moose Jaw were di- inconvenienced by, by the convoy? I think people who try to relitigate the convoy are talking about an issue that really isn't that relevant to a lot of Canadians, while Pierre's laser focused on issues that are. We'll have to leave it there. David, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be on the show, Rick. Take care. David Terrence, Vice President, National Strategic Communications, Enterprise Canada, and former communications strategist in the office of Prime Minister Stephen Harper. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, Housing, housing affordability, housing supply, uh, uh, massive topics in this city and in this province, really across the country and in many parts of the world, to be honest. REMAX Canada is out with a new report. That, long story short, says housing inventory may soon reach crisis points in Canada's major cities. Recent report from the Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation also suggesting our country needs to build 3.5 million new homes by 2030, that's just eight years from now, to tackle the affordability issue, but we are trending well short of that target. So what needs to happen? Michael Collins-Williams is the CEO of the West End Home Builders Association and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. The REMAX Canada Housing Inventory Report found inventory levels have fallen short of the 10-year average in seven of the 10 biggest markets in 2022, places like Toronto, Vancouver. Interesting to note that Hamilton Burlington was the only one of those 10, uh, 10 to buck the trend. What do you make of that statistic? It's certainly concerning when you look uh, from coast to coast across the country that, um, as Remax says, inventory on, on the resale side are, are declining, are, are below long-term trends. And then from the new housing perspective, we know that we are falling far short in terms of uh, being able to keep up with demographic and population growth, which has in fact accelerated the last few years. So, you know, despite some turbulence in the current housing market over the last few months, when we look at the long-term trends in immigration and population growth, I think there's some serious concern here as to um, the amount of housing supply for the coming years. It seems that everyone has one plan or another to boost the housing supply, but what actions are we actually seeing? You know, we've seen a lot of plans come out the last several months, the last couple of years. We need to shift from plans to action. Um, So we're starting to see uh, I think some actions, we've got a lot of uh, folks during the municipal election talking about what they're going to do. Um, but I, I think the strongest action is going to have to come from the provincial government. Uh, they're a little bit above the, the fray uh, in terms of some of the local politics and some of the, you know, I call it borderline toxic politics around anti-housing. And, you know, the local interest isn't always in the public interest and, and the province is able to pardon all four parties, the Green Party, the NDP, the Liberals, and the Conservatives who were elected, all agreed that we needed to double housing supply uh, from the current pace to build 1.5 million homes over the next uh, decade. And if we zoom into Hamilton here, you know, that would be more than our pace just to keep up um, to achieve that provincial target of 1.5 million homes. So we're going to have to move from talking about building more housing 
to actually implementing policies to build a lot more housing. Last question for you. We only have about a minute. The shortage of skilled tradespeople is not helping at all. No, and it's it's a challenge. It's become worse by housing unaffordability because we don't have enough people in Hamilton in South Central Ontario to build the housing that we need, let alone the additional schools, transit, hospitals. But as housing is becoming more and more unaffordable, how are we going to attract young families to live here? to build the very infrastructure and housing we need. So um, we're working closely with the federal government to try to ensure that some of the uh, people that we are attracting through immigration, uh, those gifts who help build us the necessary supply of housing we need over the coming decade. Michael, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for having me. That's Michael Collins-Williams, CEO of the West End Home Builders Association. A lot of heavy lifting still to come in the housing sector, that's for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. On the weekend of September 24th, 25th, there is a big event in this city. It's the Bladder Cancer Canada Awareness Walk, raising funds for bladder cancer research and obviously procedures to help those who undergo this disease. One of those individuals is a bladder cancer survivor and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton, Zena Lombardi. Zena, good morning. How are you today? I'm fine. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. You are a bladder cancer survivor and have a an incredible story to tell. Tell us about your, maybe we'll start with your diagnosis day. What was that like? Uh, honestly, I wish I could tell you more about it because that the, the day of diagnosis was a complete blur. It was um, such a shock um, to hear the words come out of the doctor's mouth. Um, what led up to that was I had been noticing um, a little bit small amounts of blood in my urine um, leading up to um, the beginning of uh, January of 2011. And I ignored it thinking oh, it's nothing it's nothing until i had a, a major episode of um, blood in my urine and i made the smartest decision which was to head to the uh, emergency room and, and that began the journey of testing to see what the problem was and um sitting in the doctor's office with my husband and hearing the words that i had bladder cancer after that i couldn't hear anything else i was just so shocked i'd never even heard of bladder cancer i was certainly not in the um, typical demographic for for someone to have bladder cancer. I had not, you know, been a smoker or worked with, you know, heavy chemicals. It came as such a shock. Yeah, you, you were a fitness instructor. You were a personal trainer. You were in great shape, and all of a sudden, your your life, your world is turned upside down. Exactly. And at the time, we had three small children, and um, you know, I, all I could f- think about was, you know, how can I overcome this? in order to be around for them as long as possible. And thankfully, I'm one of the fortunate ones that uh, still here. I, I can imagine, well, really, I can't imagine the thought process. I mean, you have three young kids, you have a husband, and you're thinking, geez, I have bladder cancer. You know, what's my life going to be like? How long am I going to live? What were some of the thoughts and feelings that you had? Uh, those that sort of you're on the right track, absolutely, uh, you know, Again, my only focus became how how can I overcome this? Um, 
in order to, to be around here for as long as possible. Um, the uh, So bladder cancer is like the fifth most common cancer, but it's not really talked about. So I, I knew nothing at all about it. Um, this year alone, probably 12,000 people will be diagnosed with bladder cancer. Um, and again, again, like I, I'd heard of breast cancer, I'd heard of uh, possibly, you know, lung cancer, but not bladder cancer. So, um, you know, first of all, was like this understanding the treatment process, which for mine, which was um, a muscle invasive um, type of cancer, it required removing my bladder and creating a new urinary diversion. Hmm. So there was a lot of, um, besides the treatment in order to remove the cancer, there was also a lot of information around what my life would, um, how my life would change post-cancer. And one of the biggest helps for me, besides the support I received from family and friends, was being able to speak to um, someone uh, connected with Bladder Cancer Canada. Um, it was a woman, uh, again, not typical um, type of uh, bladder cancer patient. She was a woman. She was very close to my age. She had just been through uh, what I had been through in terms of the diagnosis and the surgery and treatment um, less than a year uh, prior to me. So being able to speak with her on the other side of this very frightening journey and um you know, just understanding that, you know, she was able to move on with her life. She was able to, even with a, a new urinary diversion, she was able to just continue doing the things she enjoyed doing. That moment changed um, my outlook from a very uh, frightened and unsure outlook to still a frightened outlook, but with, you know, hope and that, you know, someone else had done it, then I could do it too. And that was one of the um, most key points in my uh in my journey with bladder cancer. Yeah, that sounds like a profound experience. Our uh, guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Zena Lombardi, a bladder cancer survivor who will be taking part in the Bladder Cancer Canada Awareness Walk on September 24 and 25. Um, how are you doing now? Thank you for asking. I feel fantastic. I, As I say, um, I'm one of the very fortunate ones. Um, I do believe that uh, leading a very healthy lifestyle prior to my cancer, even though in the beginning, I was very angry and felt betrayed. I'm like, everyone lied to me. You know, if you eat right and don't smoke and exercise, <laughs> you know, you should be healthy. How can I have cancer? Yeah. I now looking back on it, I think that doing all of those things prior to having cancer led me to a um, successful recovery from the treatment, from the um, surgery. Um, I Today, I can do everything that I did before cancer. I, I'm still a fitness instructor, still exercise. There, I'm not limited to anything that I want to do. Um, I, I'm grateful every single day. It's a really remarkable story. Certainly a roller coaster. You can uh, attest to that. But I'm I'm loving that you're doing well and you're going to be participating in the Bladder Cancer Canada Awareness Walk. If you want more information, if you want to register for the walk, if you want to donate to the cause, bladdercancercanada.org is the website to go to. Zena, thank you for your time. Best of luck going forward. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot to Zena Lombardi, Bladder Cancer Canada Walker, Survivor, a compelling story to tell. And I, I can't imagine the mindset of being told, I haven't obviously been in this position, that you have cancer, and not only that, but bladder cancer, not knowing much about it. Uh, you know, the, the thoughts and the fears and the what-ifs all kind of come pouring out. And, you know, the the hope is that with events like this that's coming up in Hamilton, September 24-25, we'll shine a spotlight on it to say, hey, this is this is real. People are fighting this. People need 
funding and research and uh, the whole kit and caboodle to to tackle this. And Xena has a great uh, success story, and we wish her the best of luck going forward as well. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.